My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University. In this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast, we listen to a presentation I made at the Center for Family and Demographic Research at Bowling Green State University. So I am going to talk about police crime, what we've learned and what we don't know. So I look at police deviance as really three different areas. We've got police misconduct, which is breaking some sort of rule within a police department, uh, police corruption, which is abusing your authority, and then police crime, where you're actually committing crimes. And some of those overlap a bit, but I like to focus on, uh, had to draw the line somewhere. So everyone in my data set has actually been charged. They've been arrested or indicted or charged by criminal information. Something has happened to bring them formally into the criminal justice system. And this is something that I'm never going to show this again, but um, (laughs) this is something that uh, I've been thinking about for a long time. I was uh, a police officer in several places, and when I was in college, I actually started out as a dispatcher before I was a police officer, and several police officers I worked with in Arlington County, Virginia, got arrested, one for uh, stealing cocaine from the evidence room, another for uh, forging a prosecutor's signature on paperwork to dismiss a case, and then when I went to New Hampshire, I saw what I believe is some uh, criminal behavior. Nobody got arrested, but I saw some things that uh, were quite eye-opener for me. The other night I was looking on uh, Facebook and the Marshall Project had posted a link to an Associated Press wire story. I I was actually named or quoted or something in the wire story and I noticed that Peter Kraska posted a comment responding to this article on police sexual misconduct and Peter had an article in Justice Quarterly about 20 years ago on police sexual violence and he commented this has been around for a long time, no one has cared to notice and I think that's true and it's also true with my area of research. It's, It's an area that can go along time. Uh, if you go and look at how many papers uh, cite my papers, you're not going to find a whole lot. I cite myself quite often, but... <laughs> Just really quickly, in terms of a literature review, what we know about crime by police officers comes from three primary areas. We've got independent commissions. Over the last 150 years or so, every 20 years in the city of New York, there's some sort of big scandal where an independent commission has been uh, assembled, so appointed by the mayor. So we have the Mullen Commission in 1994, the Knapp Commission in the early 70s, and going back from there. So we're just about due for something to happen in New York City, I suppose. And we've got a lot of investigative reporting by newspapers. So you look at any of the great papers across the country, uh, some that are not up there, the uh, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel has done a lot over the last few years. The Washington Post, a story that I worked on with some investigative reporters at the Washington Post earlier this year. Lots of stuff done by newspapers. And, And the key there is that the reporters that do this type of work have to be given enough leeway to have a lot of time to work on these projects, time and money. And then if we look at the social science literature, we find all sorts of things over the years. Uh, Some of the things that stick out, uh, Albert J. Rice in 1971, his book, The Police and the Public, and that was observational research in the late 1960s, and he looked at three or four cities in the Northeast, and what his researchers found was that about 22% of the police officers that were observed by grad students who were riding on patrol with them committed crimes in the researchers' presence. So I think that the officers thought that they were there observing something else, not realizing that they were the ones that were being watched. But anyway, that's kind of an interesting thing. And then Jim Fife's work. Jim Fife was a professor at John Jay College uh, in New York. Before that, he was with the NYPD. And he did a project where he had access to 20-some years of personnel records 
from the NYPD, and he looked at career-ending misconduct. So we've got one agency there, and that's typical of the research in, in uh, this area, where you've got research that's just looking at one agency, whether it's survey research, whether it's looking at records, official records, whether it's looking at observational work, you know, sometimes looks at several departments. And, and the problem with looking at the New York Police Department is it's not like any other police department in the country. There's 36,000 or so sworn officers in the NYPD. Ten years ago, there were about 43,000. So it's a huge agency. But I really look at Jim Fife's work as sort of a point where I want to pick the ball up and, and run from there. In terms of my methodology, my work is a quantitative content analysis work. I realized when I was a, a grad student working on a master's degree on my way to a PhD that there were no official statistics on crime by police officers. There's no way you could go and get a handle on it. There's no government agencies that paid attention to this and tracked this sort of thing. So it's a hidden crime and I wanted to figure out a way that I could research this and came up with the idea that I would use Google Alerts and this was the end of 2004. So if you're not familiar with Google Alerts, the way Google Alerts work is you set up a search term and you can just let it rip. You set up the search term and you have a Gmail address that the hits get sent to and it sends you a URL to the link and you just check it out and see if it's what you're looking for or not. So I started doing that with 48 search terms at the end of 2004 and I'm still printing out the articles and, and going from there. So that's where most of the cases, almost all the cases that we hear about is through news sources. We ultimately try to get court records, and I'll talk about that a little bit more, and triangulate our data sources. Intercoder reliability for the graduate students here, I thought it was important to mention the Krippendorf's alpha coefficient of 0.9153 is fairly strong. I want to talk about Google for a second because what I was interested in is Google News and not the page Google News but the search engine that drives traffic or drives articles to the Google News page. I wanted the search engine. Not the Google search engine but the Google News search engine. So I had figured out and I later found out that I was right that when Google set up the Google News search engine to build this website of news every day where you could go and see aggregated news sources from lots of different places, real-time coverage, I had figured out that they probably went and figured out the newspaper of record in every county. In other words, everywhere across the country, there's some newspaper in every county where official notices have to be put in the paper. So if you sue somebody but you can't get service on them, you put a notice in the classified ads, uh, you know, a fictitious name for a corporation, adoptions, name changes, all that kind of stuff. So those are the papers that they were looking at. And I later found out from someone at Google that that's exactly what they did when they started the Google News search engine trying to figure out what they were going to do. And publishers don't have a problem with the Google News and the Google News search engine because it drives traffic to the their news sites, when you click on the articles, you're looking at ads, and that generates revenue for the publishers. With Google Alerts, you can have a thousand Google Alerts per Gmail account. We've got many of them now because for the last several years we've actually tracked each officer that gets arrested. We follow their court cases through. It's a lot easier to do it proactively that way than try to find things five or six, ten years later. It's real hard to find things on the internet. A lot of news articles disappear or they're behind a paywall and you can't figure it out, can't get access to the court records, that kind of thing. So there's strengths and limitations to every research. I think one of the major limitations with this research is that there's a bias in the media Editors decide what they're going to publish, what they're not going to publish. It seems that news stories involving police officers, sworn law enforcement officers who get in trouble is newsworthy. It generally makes it into the newspapers. But I always wonder, you know, in the large jurisdictions like New York City, are we really capturing all the cases? And I don't think we are. I've been told by someone at the Chicago Police Department that we're right on the 
money with our numbers from Chicago. But I really don't think we capture all the cases in New York. But in smaller jurisdictions, we absolutely capture things. I don't think we're missing too much. So I don't pretend to say that we've got everything, but we've got certainly an awful lot to capture the phenomenon of police crime. So I want to talk real quickly, a bunch of slides here on our object relational database. We use a system that the university has called OnBase. It's made by a company called Highland out of the Cleveland area. And originally Highland got into digital imaging for banking related things years ago. When I came to Bowling Green, I contacted someone at ITS and was able to get access to OnBase and start building our database. And originally it was just the digital imaging database, so an object oriented database. And then as time went on, we were sorting a lot of Excel spreadsheets on a regular basis, and I asked the CIO here, how big can we deal with these Excel files? And he said, well, you can get pretty big, but what you really need is a relational database. So we combined a relational database with our object-oriented database, and now it's an object-relational database. There's probably one person in the room that that means something to. So here's just an example. We still have some things that are paper. So this is a new case login sheet. Every case that we log in, and by the way, our, our primary unit of analysis is criminal arrest case. So if somebody is arrested multiple times, we count those as separate cases, and I'll give you some examples of that. So the students that work with me will take a look at the the paperwork, the articles we have, whatever we might have, and decide whether it meets our coding criteria. And I took the part of case inclusion criteria right out of our coding protocol and put it right on the new case login sheet, because sometimes I even get confused as to, wait a minute, was uh, was this somebody who was an officer at the time that the crime was committed? Were they an officer at the time they were arrested? If it's one of those or both of those, then we count it. But if it's a retired police officer who commits a crime after they're no longer employed, we're not interested in those. However, if they've retired and they later get arrested for crimes they committed while they were working as a sworn law enforcement officer, we do count those. This is just a screenshot, batches of documents that were waiting to be indexed. So when we scan documents into the digital imaging database, we have to do the equivalent of if you were filing things in a file cabinet, you know, which file is each piece of paper going to go into? And we have to do that on a page-by-page basis. So now we're dealing with hundreds of thousands of documents, and it's a lengthy process. So there was a time when we were really backed up. Generally, there's just a few things in queue there. So here's an example of an officer from Schenectady, New York, who was arrested nine times, and it was the ninth arrest where he lost his job. And if you look here, it's hard to see. They're very small, but we were getting so confused, we actually had to make a chart to figure out all his arrest cases and we actually wrote them down here. These are not in order of arrest, but his first arrest, domestic violence and harassment. The second arrest was for violation of a protection order. Well, that makes sense. And then it goes on from there to stalking, drunk driving, eavesdropping, computer trespass, all kinds of things. This officer actually was arrested for breaking out the window in his jail cell, which seems to me a little bit over the top and cruel. I mean, who gets arrested for doing damage in a jail cell? And his ninth arrest, though, was by the feds. The feds came in and charged him with a violation of the Lautenberg Amendment to the Federal Gun Control Law of 1968. So under that law, if you've been convicted of a qualifying misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, 
anything that's an assault-related offense. You can't carry a gun. You cannot possess or own firearms or ammunition. That's a problem for law enforcement officers. And we have in our database more than a few officers who we know. We've got the court records. They were convicted of qualifying crimes of domestic violence. And they still have their job. They carry a gun every day. And, and that's a problem. They, they, anybody else would be doing 10 years in federal prison for that. So that brought a stop to this crime spree. And if you look at these cases with this officer, you see a complete unraveling of his life over just a few-year period where everything's going bad. And actually, uh, he passed away about a year and a half ago after he had been fired. So pretty rough life this guy had. And from everything I can tell, he was very well-liked, but he had some serious mental health problems and drinking problems and that sort of thing. And then this is just a list of some cases from the San Diego Police Department. We've got a variety of different tables to sort things in different ways, and we've done that primarily because sometimes we've got so many cases, it's not as robust a database as it should be. It takes you know a few seconds for things to run, and we like to look at them in different ways. So here's an article from a newspaper on Staten Island, Cop Holds Wife Hostage Over Cake. And this is a NYPD lieutenant who was not happy at his 47th birthday party when his wife had not gotten him an ice cream cake and things went downhill from there. Interestingly, we checked just a few years ago. He's still on the payroll with the NYPD. Last time we checked, we were also able to find out just last year, and this was 2006 or so, 2005, this arrest, we were just able to find out fairly recently that the following March the case went to trial and his wife refused to cooperate, which is a common theme with domestic violence cases, unfortunately, and charges were ultimately dropped. Another thing we do is we flip our unit of analysis now to arrested officer and we have a master list of thousands and thousands of officers who've been arrested. And what we did here was, I was curious, are there correlates of police misconduct? What about officers who get sued for violating somebody's civil rights, get sued in federal court? So what we did there was we looked at the PACER system, the public access to courts electronic record system in the federal courts. And several years ago, they added a master name index. And that gives you the ability to just type a name in. If you know what part of the country it's from, it's a little bit easier. If you've got a name like John W. Smith, that's a problem. But we narrow it down that way. And what we were able to find was that I think 24% of the officers overall in our database who had been arrested at some point during their career were sued in federal court for violating somebody's civil rights, so a 1983 violation. We had grant money that allowed us at 10 cents a page view to download all these documents. It was 65,000 pages of records that we downloaded, and we had ITS develop an automated process that we could bulk import these, and they were automatically indexed in OnBase, so we didn't have to do that in a manual process. And I don't know what we're going to do with all these pleas. We have thousands and thousands of lawsuits here with pleadings and docket sheets, and if anybody's looking for a dissertation, knock your socks off. Several years ago, we added a video database because we realized that a lot of the news articles we were getting were from local TV stations. Sometimes they had links to other media outlets. Sometimes the local news have the story right there. We did add a variable of race of the officer. We can't figure out race of the victim, but we added race of the officer. This has helped a lot in those cases where we're not too sure about race or we don't have a good quality picture or not one at all. So this video actually is from the Pittsburgh area and it was a state trooper who had murdered a local dentist and the trooper Kevin Foley is now uh, serving a life sentence. Interestingly, we checked fairly recently and Pennsylvania actually certifies and decertifies officers and they never decertified Foley. 
even though he's serving a life sentence. So maybe the idea there is, well, he's not going to be working again as a police officer. We don't have to go through the trouble. But it gives you pause as to what's going on there. So we now have probably 4,000 videos, and I have several students who just primarily work with capturing all these videos. We had to figure out copyright and fair use and all that sort of stuff for research purposes. We try to build something new on our database every year. This is just a copy of a second page of our original 21-page coding sheet, and we code every offense specifically. We also code the most serious offense charged in each case. So then we wanted to get rid of the 21-page coding sheet, and we were able to build using the IBM SPSS data collection software interviewer and author, we were able to build a coding sheet where we built logic in. So if a case is drug-related, it takes you to all the drug-related variables to fill out. This is really designed for survey researchers to use, actually. So we got ITS to work on this, and it took a while. We were able to actually pre-fill stuff. So if we put in a case number, it'll pre-fill everything that we've already got in our system so that you don't have to duplicate efforts. It cuts down on errors with coding and things like that. And then on the back end, this spits it out in an SPSS spreadsheet.sav file, and then we have to clean it up usually, but it saves an awful lot of work. I had a, a hard time deciding whether to go away from paper coding sheets or not because there's certainly benefits of paper coding sheets, but we just couldn't get the work done with the amount of work we had to do under the grant without doing that. So this is just a set of variables if it's family violence case, and we'll get back to this variable later on, a weapon if it's a personally owned gun as opposed to a department-issued weapon. You'll see some interesting differences there. I did three years of data for my doctoral dissertation where I had 2,100 19 cases from the years 2005, 2006, and 2007. And with the NIJ grant, we were able to take everything that I had been collecting since then and code four more years of data, and we were able to go back and recode these cases, the original 2,119 cases, because I had originally 109 quantitative variables, and we now have about 270 variables. So we had to go back and and deal with all that. So now with seven years of data, 2005 through 2011, we have 6,724 arrest cases involving 5,545 sworn law enforcement officers. These are non-federal officers employed by about 2,500 agencies in about 1,200 counties or independent cities. So the independent cities would be the cities in the Commonwealth of Virginia, Baltimore, Maryland, St. Louis, and Carson City, Nevada. And by the way, all 50 states in the District of Columbia. So it's a lot of cases. And I didn't think I could avoid bringing some maps if we have any demographers around. So I was very reluctant to look at rates. So this is the rate we flipped our unit of analysis here to individual arrested officer rate per 100,000 population. And then the problem here I see, among other things, is it really makes the rural areas look really bad. And then we looked at a rate per 1,000 sworn officers, and it paints a little bit different picture. And the reason that I decided to calculate rates was I had been contacted by Kathy Lanier, who's the police chief of the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C., and she was concerned about an article that had been published in the Washington Times where a reporter had gotten Sam Walker, who's a professor emeritus at the University of Nebraska, to comment on the number of officers who'd been arrested in the MPD in Washington. And he said, wow, that's got to be the worst police department in the country. That's worse than New Orleans. So Kathy Lanier had someone in her office contact me. And the project that I was tasked with was they, she really wanted me to prove that the Metropolitan Police Department was not as bad as the Baltimore City Police Department. So ultimately, about three years later, I was able to prove that to Chief Lanier's satisfaction. So we look at county 
really as a crime hotspot. We're treating counties as a hotspot. So we had to recode at some point along the way when we decided to use counties, we had to take the county FIPS number, uh, the five-digit number, and had a, a graduate assistant who spent a long time having to go back in every case and figure it out. There's probably a better way to do it, but it, it, uh, it took a while. Later on at a conference, I ran into somebody from BJS, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, who had been tasked to do the exact same project on a larger data set. And he said that he must have ticked somebody off at work, and that's how he got the assignment. <laughs> I'm going to show you some slides in just terms of numbers from the report that we've done for NIJ so that this is, happens to be table one, but the slide numbers or the table numbers uh, were not made for today, so there'll be numbers all over the place. And this just gives you an idea of the officers and their employing agencies. And you'll notice 5.5% uh, of the cases involve an officer who's a, a woman, a female officer, and it's been steady with that all along. Some types of crime we see the female officers are more likely to commit than the male officers. We do see some distinctions. You'll notice a problem with missing data. If we look at the age of the officers, we've got 861 cases out of 6,724, but we were not able to figure out the age at time of arrest. Uh, same thing with years of service, and those two seem to go together. But it's really interesting. Newspaper reporters ask the same questions in these cases. So a lot of times we've got the same, same data on these things. But we do have problems with missing data in those types of variables. And we spend a lot of time going back and trying to find these later to reduce missing data. Sometimes in getting ready to work on a paper where you're looking at you know, some uh, output uh, from a data set and you realize well, we've got we to go back and look at this and try to fill this in a little bit before we work on this project. About two-thirds of the cases, officers are arrested by some law enforcement agency other than their employer. So it doesn't mean it didn't happen at work or in the same jurisdiction, but the wise thing to do for a law enforcement agency in a lot of these cases is to bring an outside agency in. Also, you have police officers who live in different places than they work, so that, that accounts for a lot of that sort of thing. So we have all sorts of different ranks. It's interesting to point out that well over half these cases were crimes that were committed off-duty. And that's an interesting thing to point out because some researchers who work in this area narrowly define police crime as being on-duty crimes only. And there's, as Jim Fife said, there's, there's no bright line because police officers take their gun home, there's something about the gun and the badge and the power aspect to it, and it's just not so simple. And a lot of the crimes that we see that are committed off-duty, there's clearly a relationship to their employment in law enforcement. And then you look at the different types of agencies. We also looked at the number of full-time and part-time sworn officers in each of the agencies. And then here, this is a table of the most serious crime charged. And we use the UCR hierarchy of crimes to figure out the rank order here. And this is ordered from the most cases to the fewest. So simple assault is the most serious offense charged in the largest number of cases, which would be 877. If you combine simple assault and ag assault, you know, the numbers are starting to get up there. Drunk driving is up there. Unfortunately, forcible fondling, forcible rape, you know, there's some very serious crimes here. And as you look through here, these are actually from the NIBRS, the National Incident-Based Reporting System, and then we've added eight to the 65 that we got from the NIBRS. So we've got uh, some offenses that were not in there. So, for example, hit and run, that was not a crime that was listed. We added that. There are several things that we've added because we were seeing them over and over again. And then something that I realized fairly early on was that 
contrary to what prior research has shown, which would suggest that in the police socialization process, crime that's going to be committed or misconduct by police officers, corruption, that sort of thing, is going to happen very early in their career, probably in the first three to five years and definitely by year six. And then they either wash out or they stay in law enforcement and they just ride their careers out. And that's not what we see because about 20% of our cases involve an officer who's within three years of retirement eligibility. So we see these spikes at 18 to 20 years, 23 to 25, 28 to 30, and even 33 to 30. 35 years. And a lot of law enforcement agencies seem to have retirement systems, you know, 20 year, 25 or 30 maybe, that kind of a thing. And I don't know what's going on there. I don't know why that is. Is there something about getting ready for retirement? They're so tied up with their identity as an officer. Not sure what's going on there. It could be in some respects that in some places across the country, it's the three years highest salary or the uh, last three years salary depend, you know, will dictate what your pension is. So we do have some instances where older officers are back on the street more, working overtime when they wouldn't have been otherwise. We don't know what's going on, but I think it's a combination of things. So I decided today, instead of talking a lot about conviction, looking at conviction and job loss, that it would be more interesting to look at some of the victim data. And this is just descriptive statistics here. And this is for all the cases, 6,724. And again, missing data is a huge problem. In some news articles, depending on the crime, there may not really be a victim. If it's just drunk driving, you know, and doesn't involve a traffic accident or something, it's usually not a victim. The exception there would be you have an officer who's drunk, who has, you know, his two-year-old twins in the back seat, not in car seats, that kind of stuff, and you end up with child abuse charges on top, that sort of thing. So we see all kinds of crazy things here. So overall, the largest number in terms of the victim's relationship is a stranger or a non-stranger acquaintance. But look here, unrelated child, 673 cases. A child or stepchild, 177 cases. So there's, there's a lot of interesting things that are going on that we'll look at a little bit closer. So I have a typology of police crime, and this is based on something I was told at the New Hampshire Police Academy about 29 years ago this fall, uh, which was there are three things that will mess up your career as a police officer, and it was, it was stated something along the lines of uh, bills, broads, and booze, right? So I was thinking about that for a long time and trying to think, well, could I really look here and have, these are not mutually exclusive categories, but different types of crime, and almost all the crime by police officers falls into one or more of these five types alcohol-related, drug-related, sex-related, violence-related, and or profit-motivated police crime. And I've been thinking about a sixth category because we do have some cases that are just very, very strange cases, and that would be revenge-motivated crime, where somebody, a police officer, is committing a crime for the pure sport of it to mess with somebody. So, for example, your ex-girlfriend's new significant other. That's always fun, right? That sort of thing. So I'm going to look at a bunch of slides where we're going to talk about the different types here. So we'll look at a few things with alcohol-related crime. And I don't know that this makes a whole lot of sense to show you victim characteristics and alcohol-related offenses because there's not really a whole lot going on here. I think that a lot of alcohol-related crimes you know, wouldn't have a victim typically. It's interesting. Stranger or non-stranger acquaintance, you've got what is that, 382 cases. Some of these cases are also violence-related. So we have a lot of cases where police officers will get into fights at bars. We also have an interesting phenomenon, by the way, where outside concerts in the summer, like a James Taylor concert, we, every summer we see officers who get arrested because they get in a fight uh, out on the lawn at some outdoor concert. And it's always something you know, benign, you know, a country band or something like that. But it happens with, with great regularity. 
So if we look at drunk driving cases, I was interested in drunk driving because law enforcement is generally exempt from law enforcement. And when I was a police officer, the general thing was you try not to arrest another officer, especially for drunk driving. So why are these officers getting arrested? And what we see, over half of them got in traffic accidents. There's a, a number of cases here where you've got a hit and run, 76 cases where there was a hit and run. We've got other cases where they fled the scene but weren't charged with hit and run. So all kinds of things going on there. And what's really going on there is these cases involve an officer who gets arrested because the incident cannot be explained away without writing a report, calling a tow truck, something like that. So we've got cases where um, cars are flipped over in ditches. I've never seen so many cars flipped over. We have officers who drive into fire trucks fire hydrants, fire stations, all sorts of things. Fire trucks seem to be a big target. Um, And we actually have 42 cases where they were actually on duty in a police vehicle. We've got other ones where they were driving a take-home police cruiser, going back and forth to work, uh, drunk. So it's kind of a strange thing. So let's look at some drug-related offenses. We wanted to look at drug patterns. What, what are the patterns in these cases? And we were thinking about corruption. So we've got various types of shakedowns. Shakedowns where you're like robbing a street drug dealer or from traffic stops. Warrantless searches where you're stealing things from people. In this case, drugs. We've got theft from the police evidence room, falsification where they're writing up reports that aren't true about drugs, forged prescriptions, planning evidence, and then sexually motivated drug corruption, which was a variable that one of my grad assistants asked us to add. And here is a card analysis, so classification and regression tree. Instead of looking at the actual tree, what we're looking at here is the splitting variable, which we see here in terms of uh, shakedowns that are car stops and thefts from drug couriers. Cocaine is the drug of choice. Uh, Cocaine is also the drug choice when you're stealing from street-level dealers, drug trafficking, or facilitation of the drug trade. Interesting with drug trafficking, there's where we see it. The second level would be heroin. And what we see here in this chart is really what I'd expect to see. Cocaine, by the way, is the big drug all the way around with officers who get in trouble with drugs, followed by marijuana and then heroin. But we're starting to see more with pills, uh, hydrocodone, oxycodone. We're starting to see a lot more in the way of heroin-related arrests, too, is, is the same thing with everyone else with the problem with you know moving from pills to uh, heroin. We've got anabolic steroids. There's a class of police officers in uh, a group that seem to be bodybuilders, competition bodybuilders, and we see that in two specific places across the country. We've seen cases in New Jersey and then some on the West Coast, it seems to be. So I'm not too sure. I, I was born in New Jersey. So this is a decision tree, a cart tree, from an earlier paper that we did, and this just graphically shows selling, dealing, or trafficking drugs, cocaine. If the case does not involve cocaine, then heroin, and if it's not heroin, anabolic steroids, and if it is heroin, well, it just drops out there. If it is cocaine, then marijuana is the next thing. So there are certain patterns we see, and we were trying to figure out different patterns here, and that's why we got into decision tree analysis. Another thing we got into decision tree analysis for is we can not worry about violating various assumptions of statistical operations. So with missing data, instead of throwing the case out, it actually makes use of the available data.
and it just seems to be that you know I seem to specialize in nominal level data and outliers. So there's something about that that seems to work with decision tree analysis. Here we got shakedowns, thefts from car stops and drug couriers. Again, it's cocaine, marijuana, fencyclidine. And then victims in drug-related cases, we're just missing an awful lot of data there. And the news articles quite often, you can't figure it out in the articles. Some of the court records, it's, it's, it's just as ambiguous. So we look at sex-related police crime here. Interesting to point out here that in terms of where we can determine the sex of the victim, that 11% of the cases involve males. We've got a lot of juveniles who are victims in these cases. And the startling thing here is that about half the cases involve victims who are under the age of 18 in these sex-related offenses. And it's interesting to point out that the off-duty sex crimes uh, where officers are arrested involve typically younger people than the on-duty sex-related cases. And there's some strange things going on here. We're trying to figure it out. It seems that in in a lot of the cases we've dealt with that it'll be involving the girlfriend's 14-year-old daughter, that kind of thing. And it just seems to be that people will give access to law enforcement officers who's a new boyfriend quicker than maybe they would if they were, I don't know, a professor or a plumber or a firefighter. And we see these just strange cases there. We also see in the Law Enforcement Explorers program. It's the only part of scouting where they waive the rule of having at least two adults for every activity where you've got the scouts there is with Law Enforcement Explorers where the adolescents are on ride-alongs with police officers. And we've got a good number of cases involving kids who are victims of sex crimes in those cases. So we looked here at police officers who are arrested for sex crimes. And this is a decision tree where the most influential variable was whether the victim was a child or not. And it's interesting here, it breaks down. We've got two things going on. We look at the location of where the crime occurred. So if it's in the victim's residence, at somebody else's residence, at a school or college or some other public place, 66% of those cases the victim was a child. And on the other hand, if the crime occurred on a road, in a parking lot, a garage, in a commercial building, in a nightclub, in a bar, there we've got Only 28, 29% of the victims are under the age of 18. And then here, if we're predicting child victims, there's some interesting things. We're looking at a a, a binary logistic regression table here. So duty status. The child victims are more likely to be the off-duty cases. There's some interesting things here. If you look at the odds ratios, the cases are more likely to involve pornography. Unclassified sex crimes, they just don't meet any of our crimes that we've got listed. So it's not fondling, it's not sodomy, it's not rape, it's not statutory rape, it's just something completely different. So there's some interesting things here. Driving while female encounter. Sam Walker came up with that term if you think of driving while black. Those are cases where a law enforcement officer stops an attractive young woman under the pretext of some traffic violation and then sexually harasses them. In a few of those cases, they're actually forcible rape cases. And So I don't know if you recognize that photograph, but that's from last week, the video that we all saw, 17 seconds or whatever, from South Carolina. And did a paper a few years ago on crime by school resource officers, and typically the officers who are school resource officers that get arrested, it's for sex crimes. It's involving high school students, and sometimes even younger students. But it's more what you would expect if a high school teacher were to be arrested. But it raises some interesting questions from what we saw in that video last week. I think there's a lot of violence with the school resource officers, but you know, policing is violent, and you've got a captive audience there in schools, and I think we're going to learn a lot more about that, and maybe it'll... uh, show something else going on as we look closer at that. So then if we look at violence-related, here again we're looking at logistic regression table. Here we're predicting conviction. Interesting, the simple odds 
of conviction are about 11 and a half times greater if the violence-related offense is a burglary. And then here, victim characteristics in violence-related cases. Again, we've got uh, missing data, but if you'll notice, about half the cases involve strangers or non-stranger acquaintances in these cases. We also have, in these violence-related cases, about 6% of the cases, the victim is another police officer. There are several areas of violence-related police crime that I've looked at, and I'll go through a few of these here with you. So officer-involved domestic violence, that's something that's understudied and it's a huge problem in law enforcement agencies. It's a huge problem for victims because police officers know where the shelters are. You can't get away quite often. They have ways of getting phone numbers that, that other people wouldn't be able to get. And research would suggest that a large number of police families have problems with domestic violence. And it's something that a lot of agencies don't even have policies on how to deal with when their employees, police officers, get arrested for domestic violence. A weird thing with the Lautenberg Amendment to the Federal Gun Control Act, if somebody's arrested for domestic violence, or they're not arrested, but in either of those cases there's a protection order taken out against them, the court can allow them to carry their firearm at work, even though they're under a protection order. There's no exception once they're convicted of a qualifying misdemeanor crime of domestic violence. That exception, though, if you're under a valid protection order, applies to military and law enforcement officers. We did a study on the criminal misuse of tasers, and it seems that the people who are tased, if you will, by police officers in a criminal way, it's people who are no threat at all to the officer, typically. And if you look at the training, the taser training, go look at a video on YouTube. It always seems to be laughing in the background. It seems that cops think that pain is funny in that regard, and it doesn't leave too many marks. So it's good sport to tase, apparently, people who are handcuffed, homeless people, teenagers, each other, and people that you find in the act, in flagrante delecto with your spouse. We see that in more than a handful of cases. Jim Fife came up with the term bizarre violence to refer to off-duty cases where police officers just do strange things with guns. Pointing your pistol at your 12-year-old daughter because she didn't do her math homework. Pulling a gun on somebody in a bar. Just crazy things that nobody else would do. But police officers carry guns. And in most places, they're required to by departmental policy 24 I'm not so sure that's a good idea. My friends in law enforcement do not agree with me on that. And then after the uh, Michael Brown incident where he was uh, killed in Ferguson more than a year ago now, the question has come up where people have been trying to figure out, the media has been trying to figure out how often do officers get charged with murder or manslaughter from on-duty shootings. And nobody could come up with a number. And I had received a call from a reporter with Talking Points memo in D.C., And at first I said, well, everybody wants that data, nobody has it. And then I realized about two days later that we have a gun variable that we had added in our supplemental coding in the middle of this NIJ grant where we'd gone back and coded a bunch of variables in all the cases, and I was able to determine the number. I was asked last fall by an editor at the Washington Post if I'd be willing to work with the Post on a piece that they wanted to do some investigative reporting to go back and look at the last decade of these cases, and we did that, and it was published on the front of the Washington Post on Sunday, April 12th of this year, and the number there was 54, but it's a weird number and a weird time frame because it was 10 years, 3 months, and 2 weeks, so I thought it would be easier to look at it this way. In the 10-year period from 2005 through 2015, 
14, 47 sworn law enforcement officers in this country were charged with murder and manslaughter resulting from an on-duty shooting where they killed somebody. So far this year, 12 officers have been so charged. But I don't think we can say there's a pattern there. First of all, we're dealing with such a small sample, such small numbers, it's really hard to say what's going on. In 2007, there were 11 of those cases, but two of the cases involved multiple officers who were arrested. So some of you may have heard of a case in Atlanta where the police barge in in a raid and an elderly woman thought it was a home invasion and she gets her gun and they shoot and kill her and they were charged, multiple officers. Of these officers so far, only 11 have been convicted by a jury trial or a bench trial in the last almost 11 years. I don't know that we're going to be able to tell any sort of pattern here. We're going to have to wait a few years to figure that out. And this is predicting conviction in officer-involved domestic violence cases. This is sort of interesting. 88% of the cases involving personally owned guns that are officer-involved domestic violence result in conviction. For some reason, the courts give officers a pass if they commit a domestic violence crime, but they use their department-issued firearm. I don't get it. They also are only convicted in domestic violence cases if they use their hands or fists in 46% of their cases. But if they kick a woman, they're going to be convicted. We've seen that 87% of the cases. And here it's interesting, 87% of the domestic violence cases where they're charged with murder ends in conviction, but only 44% of the cases of simple assault. On the other hand, vandalism, for some reason, is not tolerated by the courts. 100% of our cases where officers were arrested for domestic violence crimes and they committed an act of vandalism, they were convicted. So real quickly on profit-motivated offenses, what we see here is these crimes are more likely to be on-duty offenses than some of the other types. By the way, the sex crimes are on-duty, off-duty. Violence crimes are on-duty, off-duty. Drug crimes are more likely to be on-duty. Alcohol-related offenses more likely to be off-duty. And then the profit-motivated offense is more likely to be on duty. It could be stealing from a drug dealer. That would be violence-related and profit-motivated. Interesting, the female officers, it seems to be that the profit-motivated crime, we see that quite often with the female officers. Interesting cases, a shoplifting, insurance fraud. We have uh, several cases where it's a, f a woman, police officer or state trooper who is uh, committing insurance fraud by burning a vehicle and just crazy things. So they're getting charged with insurance fraud related arson. And we look at the different types of offenses, the most serious offense charged in the profit motivated cases. It's all sorts of stuff. It's all sorts of things going on there. And then the last thing, again, I told you 24% of our officers have been sued at some point in their career in federal court for violating somebody's civil rights, so a 1983 violation. And this just looks at predicting whether somebody's going to be sued at some point in their career for violating somebody's civil rights and some of the things that we would look at there. Interesting thing, if their supervisor was disciplined, so that's something that everybody's getting in trouble for, they're more likely to be sued at some point if they were reassigned to another position, if it involved cocaine. All right, well, I think we are out of time, unfortunately. This was Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks a lot. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast. My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. This project was supported by award number 2011-IJCX-0024, awarded by the National Institute of Justice at the United States Department of Justice. 
The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast are mine alone and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Justice. This episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast was recorded at the Center for Family and Demographic Research at Bowling Green State University on November 4, 2015. The Center for Family and Demographic Research has core funding from the Eunice Kennelly Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. For more information on my research, please go to www.bgsu.edu slash police integrity lost.